0: Hello, and welcome to episode 21 of the Data-Driven Security Podcast. My name is Jay Jacobs, and joining me is Bob Rudis. Bob, how are you today?
1: Jay, I'm, I'm doing good. It's fall, it's beautiful, and I'm bumming, though. Why? Because I, I, I missed hanging with, with, all, with all you guys this past week at
0: one of the premier data driven security conferences that exist out there. And you you were missed. You were missed. And let's let's hold off talking about that. And let's bring on Lane. So joining us also is Lane Harrison. He's an assistant professor of computer science at Worcester Polytechnic Institute and I got all of that out without stuttering. Lane, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be here.
1: Welcome back to the show,
0: Lane. Yes. Return visitor. Is this your third time?
2: I think so. Third time yeah, is Something, something.
0: It, it's a sign of our lack of creativity. I think that's what it is. <laughs>
2: you can't convince anyone else to come on here, huh? Right. That's it.
0: You know, we've got like ten people, and we're just going to cycle through them. So, but uh, no, you're on here for a reason, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about VizSec, which you are the chair of, and and do one heck of a job organizing and, and arranging, and it's coming up in a few weeks. So we wanna we wanna talk to you about that. But uh, before we do that, let's go back to Siricon, Bob.
1: Yeah, actually, that's that's within the context of a bunch of things. So, as folks might might know, if you follow us on Twitter, because we were retweeting a bunch of things, yeah. just- just occurred this past week, and while that was going on and i i do, I do want to talk about zerocon we 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 actually got a question um, from Bambok and i do not know Bambach's first or last name and if Bambach is actually part of their name or not a very secretive twitter person but they asked if there were you know like what the recommendations were for data driven security conferences and like they used the word practical right and you know looked at languages and things like that and and initially, my my head was like, "Wow, I, I I don't know of any like just initially." But then I I, I kind of let it settle down for a second. It's like, wait a minute, we're we're not doing too badly in the data driven security conference kind of mode because right, Ciracon yeah. this just you know like that's that is a very data driven conference. It it isn't people just yeah. sharing opinions. It actually is people kind of showing data and results from there. Uh, MetriCon, which MetriCon ten will be happening the extravaganza that it will be, and that's that's definitely a, a data-driven security conference. And then, you know, like VizSec, I would definitely define VisSec as a data-driven... You know, it's about visualization, but you've got to visualize data, right? So it's a data-driven security conference. And yeah. I would also agree, ar- argue that WISE could possibly be thought of as one, too.
0: Good call. And not only that, but, like, some of the just normal security conferences are getting more data-driven. You know, like, they're, at RSA, there's more and more talks every year that are, are being data-driven and, and talk about the, that buzzword big data and things like that. Uh, and the, uh, the B-Sides track, the ground truth uh, at B-Sides Las Vegas for the last two years actually has been a, a track on ground truth which is mainly data analysis and, uh, and things like that. So I, 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 yeah, I had the same reaction to that question of like what? There are any you know, but uh, there are. There's quite a few conferences out there, and I, I would like to think that over the next year or two we'll probably see a little bit more pop up as well.
1: Lane, have we missed any of the more academic ones? Um, I, you know, I, Obviously yours is one of the premier ones, but are there any other ones that might fall into that category of data-driven security conference in academia? Ooh,
2: security-specific. Um, You get touches of data-driven security at things like uh, CCS. Uh, so communication and cybersecurity, possibly. I'm not sure about the acronyms, uh, and then also IEEE security and privacy, another really popular one. Um, and it, generally, the, the, the data-driven security side is is driven by the researchers themselves, right? So if, if people are getting into that area and they want to bring it to these conferences that are you know traditionally more theoretical or you know uh, hardware-based or math-based in, in, in nature, um, those papers tend to go over pretty well. Uh, especially, you know, whenever you guys get excited about them, right. that encourages us to to do more, to release more tools. Good.
1: And and I think one that that I'm I don't know if I'm yeah, I think I did mention it to Bambach, but uh, and this may not come to folks' minds initially is a security conference because it's got a broader, um, you know, what a broader focus than just security. But Usenix, there's a lot of nuggets of gold from a security standpoint. Uh, out of the Usenix conference. The the papers that that are security themed or have have a relation to security have been very, very good. And I I think that's one thing I appreciate about Usenix over some of the other kind of traditional conferences, so not the academic ones, but but like SierraCon and, and even like the RSAs where there aren't papers. It's all just, you know, PowerPoints or whatever kinds of presentations. And I, I like the papers because there's a good focus to them. And I like the, I think all the VizSec ones, there's papers for all those before it's just people throwing visualizations up too. So I, I like the papers because you can really sit back, read, and digest what the folks are thinking and, in theory, potentially even like, you know, do, do stuff in the same vein that they were beyond just kind of staring at the PowerPoints. So. Yeah, Yeah, papers should live alone.
2: Actually, I should have mentioned Usenix. I mean, I I have, you know, my my library here is full of Usenix papers from Usenix Security and uh, Usenix Lisa. Um, Those are two great venues. Um, So well respected in academia and the industry side. Uh, They're really doing something right.
0: And that's where Metricon used to be hosted with that. A while back. That's going back in the memory there, Jay.
2: Another one comes to mind. Sorry, uh, Soups Symposium on Usable Privacy and Security. Um, now that's more of the kind of uh, you know I guess theoretical and applied HCI side of security and privacy. Um, so sometimes you see stuff that's focusing on you know how do users set permissions on Android phones, and uh, how can we make that better uh, so that they're not you know spilling all their data out into the internet, um, that sort of thing. But there have also been some studies, uh, really interesting studies of analysts themselves. Um, and uh, I, I see a few of them; those papers cited here in, in the Visec papers uh, that we have this year. So it's great to see the interplay between the two. And Visec was actually hosted
1: with Soups a few years back. Very cool. But I, I, I go back to the me being bumming, though, for this week because this is the second time um, in as many years where employment situation has made it impossible to attend Syracon, and I am just... Bummed because there was so many good-looking like stuff coming out of tweets from the conference. I helped set, I helped set up the tweet streams and stuff for it, so I, I'm staring at tweet streams, longing to be there. Not just hanging with the you know the smart folks that are there, but just learning from whatever went on there. And Jay, so you were at it, and yep. like, can you, know, can you give us like a mini conference report?
0: Sure. First off, one of the things that I think makes Siricon special, and something that we're gonna we're gonna I think focus on maintaining for as long as we possibly can, is that it's a single-track conference and what that does is that it gives everybody in the room a shared experience you know you're not going through multiple tracks you're not swapping rooms and stuff like that like everybody's there everybody's seeing and hearing and experiencing the same thing and I think that creates a a, a nice sense of a community you know when everybody's at lunch they can talk about the same thing because everybody saw the same things and things like that so I mean right away that I think that's just one of the things that makes makes that somewhat special and then uh, the other thing was just the the good variety of speakers. Uh it really had a range, you know. We had one paper that went into incredible detail about a, a machine learning practice about trying to forecast and predict breaches to you know, people talking about their experience and, and uh, compliance frameworks and things like that. It was a really nice range to it. Um and so I mean I, I could go on a specific tracks, but I think uh, we'll just leave that for the videos because everything was uh, recorded and uh, we're still trying to get permission from some of the speakers to, to release them all but hopefully every every talk will be re- re- uh, released and uh, it, it'll be released to CIRA members for probably the first few months here and then released to the public uh, later so uh, we could just save some of the details for that video. Great. So. But it was a fantastic experience. Um, I do want to call out, you know, we had uh, uh, Doug Hubbard and Richard Syerson uh, as opening keynotes, and they did just a fantastic job. You know, they're working on a book. Uh, Doug Hubbard is the author of How to Measure Anything, and he's working on a book now specifically titled How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity and he's writing that with Richard because uh, Doug Hubbard doesn't, he, he does not work in security, he does not know the industry, but he certainly knows uh, measurement and analytics and things like that, And so uh, he he partnered up with Richard Syerson from uh, GE Healthcare, and so those two are working on a book and, and they did a really nice job. Uh, Richard sort of set the stage for cybersecurity and measuring and then Doug Hubbard took over uh, really nice sort of back and forth in that opening keynote. All in all I think it was a, a great experience and as you mentioned, the, the tweets coming out of there and the, the sense of community and the uh, the networking and the, the connections, I think, are invaluable. And, and I had that last year as well. And so it's really becoming something that I'm looking forward to year over year. That kind
2: of makes me want to go. I have to yeah. step out
0: of this academic show. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But, but you know, next year, one of the things that I think I'm, I'm going to try and push for next year is a hybrid submission approach for the CFP um, to really... Encourage people to do papers because uh, I think not only does that offer some benefit for attending, but I think for the speakers it would help solidify some of the uh, material that they're doing and help them put it into a format. and And I think it might uh, uh, help bring Silicon to the next level, if especially if we have a hybrid where some people, uh, you know, like Trey Ford is a very visceral speaker and uh, very energetic, and he, he had the afternoon slot right after lunch on the second day, which is all you know. Tough slot for people falling asleep, but I mean Trey gets up on stage and uh, just uh, just a huge ball of energy and very entertaining. And I, I wouldn't want Trey to write a paper. Like I just I would want him to keep doing what he does, you know. So I want to have that hybrid approach where we you know we accept some papers for the serious things and and uh, open it up for people to do the normal uh, CFP process typically found in security. So hopefully that'll help next year.
2: Yeah, we've actually had some uh, – some so VizSec over the past few years has had a few industry people writing papers, and they've kind of advocated for this approach too, to sort of have a, a hybrid approach where you could get more involvement from, you know, the people who supposedly need to use these things that we're developing uh, in, our, in our ivory towers um, visualization for cybersecurity. Uh, so it would be great to find more ways, you know, not only uh, the hybrid approach, but other ways to get more people involved uh, from the industry, people that need to use these tools uh, and, you know, making things more open, uh, requiring or encouraging authors to to post their tools uh, as open source and ready to use. Um, that sort
0: of thing can be really useful. Yeah, absolutely. So with that, I think we should transition over to talk about Visec. If, if that's okay with you guys. I guess so. All right. Lane, so I, well, actually, I had a question just to, just to start
1: that. Lane, how many years have you been, like, running slash involved with Visec?
2: Let's see. My history with VizSec goes back to 2010, uh, where that was my first academic paper, uh, first author ever. Um, so – Since then, I actually have become involved only for about two years in an official capacity. So usually you'll be involved in a program committee, and uh, if you're really active, you know, you might get invited to be on the organization committee, and uh, then you can just kind of switch around from roles uh, within there. So it's been really great uh, to to have the opportunity to get involved. Um, Maybe it's just because other people didn't want to do it.
1: So since you've been involved for for that many years, I mean, you know that 2010 is going on six years now. Have you, have you seen an evolution in the in VizSec? Have you seen like basically have you watched it grown up or has it evolved into something different from what it was, you know, when when you were doing stuff in 2010? Have we grown up? Well, VizSec is uh,
2: heading into its 12th year this year, um, which 12 years ago, I mean, I don't want to scare you. I was in high school 12 years ago, uh, so it's been a while. Uh, but so to to put it in perspective, VisSec started out as a collaboration between people in data mining uh, and visualization researchers, people that work in the interfaces, uh, and they found that back in you know 2004, 2005, there was a need for uh, techniques that allow people to, you know, kind of deal with the large amounts of security data um, that you know that they were facing. Right. So back in the 90s, I guess you know nobody had any data. That's not really true. Uh, but it turns out that they started to meld these things together. Uh, but through doing a few literature searches over the years, I, I can characterize the evolution of vissec as, you know, as a community starts out, it's in an exploration phase. Um, so t- to take an example from security, uh, everybody knows PCAP data. You can instrument in a machine to capture PCAP data. What are the ways that you visualize that? Uh, so you see a lot of papers in early Visec years that do that sort of thing. So we have a data set. This data set has a particular structure, a particular dimensionality. What are the different ways that we can visualize that and which ones are useful? Um, so every community needs that sort of thing. And it, it, even some of the papers this year get into that. So exploring and defining the design space is an important part of any visualization community. Uh, where it's headed now that's becoming really interesting is to start to take into consideration uh, the users. So last year there were a few papers on evaluation. This year you start to see papers that start to talk about, you know, the the context in which these tools are actually used. Uh, So can you make a tool that actually fits into an operational workflow, going from triage to uh, quarantine to remediation and whatever the stages uh, might be so seeing tools that actually take that into account is really really interesting because it might mean that it's something that you know people will actually want to use. Um, so that's that's been fun. And uh, another thing that's become popular, I mean, you hear people talking about machine learning insecurity, security, unsupervised learning, uh, and I, I think we're just starting to touch on you know what's the relationship you know between uh, having humans in the loop and having these automation algorithms. Uh, so if we can combine the two. Uh, what would that actually look like? Does that change the workflow? Um, And, you know, does it help us handle a larger amount of data? Uh, Can we use it to build useful models that we can use later on? So some of the papers that are touching on that sort of topic is pretty interesting, too.
0: So you mentioned um, some of the supervised and unsupervised, um, and that spurred something in my thought here. At, at Siricon, I, when I was presenting at Syracon, I, I mentioned a, a saying, and I, I don't know quite how it's worded, but there's something about um, nobody, nobody learns unsupervised. Um, and it's sort of a reference to, you know, there's never been a paper that proves something that was based on unsupervised learning. Because, uh, you know, unsupervised is, is clustering. And for those who don't know, unsupervised is when you have a data set without uh, understanding exactly what things are and you use unsupervised techniques to to cluster and or look for similarities, um, group things like that, and, and to find differences and distances and things like that. And, uh, and so, like, have, how does that play out? Because I know a lot of what you're dealing with, a lot of these papers are... Uh, talking about the operations center, the analyst, uh, dealing with incident response. And so do you see a lot of, of unsupervised things? And, and can you talk about sort of the any value perhaps that, that, that those may bring? Because I, I know that it's a challenge, right, to bring value for unsupervised learning.
2: Absolutely. So I will say I have not seen you know many papers that actually get into that topic. Okay. Uh, I'll talk about this in a general sense. Um, and how I view, you know, visualization and machine learning working together. Uh, Unsupervised learning, to me, is sort of like exploratory data analysis, which is what visualization is supposed to be good at. It's supposed to let you, you know, process a large amount of data and to come up with hypotheses that you can then confirm. Uh, So looking at those sorts of techniques and how we should apply them in security would be very, very interesting. I think You know, for a VizSec paper, um, or for any academic paper for that matter, it tends to be very focused. Uh, You you tend not to talk about these things in in terms of generalities until, you know, the machine learning community reaches a point to where they have, you know, their own generalities and their own classes of algorithms uh, that can can be applied to the type of data that you have. Um, So there's this interesting interplay between both of them, uh, both communities. And, you know, once we reach a point where it becomes, you know, usable, uh, we'll probably start seeing papers that actually, you know, try to reach out in this way. Um, okay. As far as I know, I don't see much unsupervised um, learning going on in the security community operationally. Is that true? Okay.
0: Well, no. There's been, uh, and Bob, I know, would love to talk about this subject, but there's a, a very large rash of uh, anomaly detection. Uh, and what that is is, you know, they, they try to learn from the network and then look for things that are weird And, of course, the problem with that is when you have something unsupervised, you cannot measure performance. You don't know how many you're catching. You don't know how many you're missing. uh, And things that are are being caught that shouldn't be caught that are false positives, that sort of thing. It's very difficult. I I actually think a rash is a really great way to describe
1: that.
2: (laughs) I describe it as placing a security camera and looking at the wall. So you have something there that's looking for something, but it's not looking anywhere useful. Right. It's a pretty difficult thing.
0: And you don't know if it's doing well, I mean mm-hmm. like it you know maybe if it catches one thing, you could say that it has some value, but there's a, a pretty high cost to some of these systems, especially in human capital, to go and track down the the output of these things
2: absolutely, so is there a deed for those at all? Um, from your perspective as, a, as an operational person, like, hypo- theoretically, do you actually see this working? That would be an interesting question to me, just, right. just to see from you, like, you know, if it could give you anomalies uh, or at least present something whenever you don't know what to look for. Maybe you're stuck, you're wheel spinning, and you're like, yeah. I need somewhere else to look. Do There's do you definitely open up a point for it.
0: Okay. I and mean, there, there's definitely a desire for that type of activity. I think, and I don't know if it's a, you know, it's like the, the silver bullet mentality of like, you mean I don't have to actually give you labeled data and you just tell me what's wrong? Yes, sign me up for that, you know. Uh, but I, I don't know, I mean, there's definitely, I mean, the, the, the large amount, I won't say rash anymore, Bob, but the, the large amount of startups in this space trying to do anomaly detection says to me that there is buzz and demand and interest in that field.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the issues, and this is a good transition for, I think, some of the papers, too, is that you have got a lot of organizations who are you know maybe using some of the existing nascent tools that they have from vendors and some of it is just basically you know taking logs and aggregating logs and they're they're literally staring at the matrix like not like a cool matrix whip like a numerical thing they're staring at this massive data having nowhere you know they they have no idea to look all of their sem rules that are canned ones firing off things that are useless left and right and you know, you, they, they do need somewhere to go from there to, to something else. And, you know, anomaly detection is not necessarily a bad step to narrow down the focus of a bunch of things. But one thing that has concerned me more than I think, like, I'm I'm not going to speak for Jay, but like, we both have concerns about the anomaly detection. But one thing that, that, that's concerned me more is that a lot of, a lot of these, Solutions, especially from startups, they're they're presenting themselves as as in essence right. a, a silver bullet, and it's, yeah. it's it's going to find the things, and people will fall into the trap of oh, it's finding all of the things, and no, it really isn't finding all the things. It's finding some of the things, and you're gonna have to manually decide if the if the thing was good or not, and then you better be doing you know if there better be a feedback loop associated with it, and so yeah, now outside we're outside of the product. That's exactly, the yeah, it's outside. Exactly, and so n- now we're getting into that whole problem of how do you bring bring that feedback in, and there's just there, there's a lot of problems associated with that that no one thinks about because they're, they're just so desperate to move from staring at the matrix to give me a few things to go chase after.
2: That's really interesting. So that brings up a paper. I do want to give a little bit of equal shout-out to all papers, but since this one is relevant, um, so one that I'll, I'll, I'll give a shout-out to right now that deals with exactly this is a visual analytics... Loop for supporting model development. This is from Simon Walton, Eamon McGuire, and Min Chen. Uh, so Simon is at Simon and Min are at Oxford University, and Eamon uh, is at CERN. Um, so we've got some some you know collider people involved. That's, right. that's pretty interesting. Um, and actually, they're getting at this exact problem. So so looking at some of their uh, the figures that they're producing and the premise of their paper, uh, it's it's kind of defining how how this loop should play out. Given that you have this magic model, this unsupervised detector, you know, what are the feedbacks that actually should go back into it to improve the model? Um, How do you, you know, manage multiple models? uh, And how do you actually, you know, visualize the result? And they're kind of treating almost the visualization as a black box in this one, which is really useful. Um, Interesting. A a good way to look at it. Uh, So it's good to see people that are actually thinking about this problem in a sensible way. Um, not just saying that it is a silver bullet. Um, right. th- we really need to define how, how people need to interact with this in an operational context.
0: Right. And the, so the, they actually go after unsupervised learning? I'm not sure if they're going after lear- which type of learning.
2: I see PCA, and I see a Bayesian based model, and I see that they have some previous work on anomaly detection. Uh, using a, a specialized technique, so I'm not sure exactly how they're doing uh, their their detection here. Um, I see automated detection, which makes me think that it's somewhat could be unsupervised, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean so. Uh, but it's more about you know, given a, a set of models, you know, what's the what's the loop actually look like in practice? Yeah.
0: And, I mean that that loop is talking about how you evaluate performance, right? You need that loop to understand what the heck just happened and was it valuable and how is it going to perform tomorrow and next week, kind of thing.
2: Right. Absolutely. And they they, they take the uh, you know the the notion of you you not only have people doing monitoring and analysis, but you have specific people that are building these models and maintaining these models, which is exactly what you guys were thinking about. So yeah. The, I would be interested to, to dig into this one more.
1: Actually with with that paper too that's that's an interesting notion for an organization cuz right now the and again it's the vast majority of it's not every single one there are some that are pioneering various efforts in data driven security and looking at things and better visualization, et cetera, but I mean most of them are still they have no choice but to be stuck where they are but that that's an interesting proposition to say look at i i need your, I need the u security operations group it's now no longer just folks that know firewall logs and Splunk and whatever, but I also need you to have some people that are really smart in these areas." Who are basically pre- helping process this feedback loop and pro- provide, making smarter tools. It's like you've actually got, you know, it's a that's a whole new ask for a security organization that's never been done before, never been posited before, and that that can require a lot of reframing and a lot of kind of reteaching organizations how to staff up and how, you know why they're staffing up the way they are.
2: Brilliant. That's an interesting implication. I can tell you, as an you know academic, I generally don't think that way. I let the organizations figure out their thing, <laughs> but this is maybe how it should be. Uh, so I'll be really interested to see Simon's presentation on this one um, and, and to learn more about how they're thinking about the problem. Uh, I, I think they're you know as as more organizations start to think about uh, you know using learning either supervised or unsupervised using models. Uh, That will probably pique our interest as as something that we should continue to look at. Uh, There are a lot of challenges there. Uh, As you know, so so at at the Viz conference, it's actually made up of three sub-conferences. One of those is FAST, which is Visual Analytics Science and Technology. And that typically, you know, most of the papers there deal with this human-in-the-loop processing of information, so data is too large. How do we, you know, connect humans with algorithms in sensible ways? How do we learn from humans as they're, you know, doing processing? I mean, it would be interesting if, if security analysts didn't have to explicitly label things for their models, but that we could infer labels based on, you know, the activities that they already do or activities that are natural to them. Uh, so FAST kind of deals with that sort of thing
0: yeah and that's i mean that's one of the the practices in uh, machine learning to do what's called a semi supervised approach right where you start unsupervised and use the feedback of analysts in this case to to start providing labeled data and then as you start to get that labeled data you feed that back in and now you start to to do more supervised type things and that's you you do this semi supervised approach to build up that labeled data set and so i think I think that's the direction that uh that would have to go to truly be useful in my mind.
2: Yeah. And I think if I have one ask of the security community, it would be to, you know, tell us and write and blog post about, you know, successes uh, or, you know, data sets where this should be applied. Uh, because that's sometimes a mystery to an academic. We, we usually go off of challenge data sets or, you know, the few contacts that we actually have. Uh, so the more we hear about how these, you know, techniques actually play out experimentally in practice, uh, it's very valuable to us to say, oh, you shouldn't be looking at net flow data; you should be looking at, you know, some other type of data uh, whenever you're doing your 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 uh, supervised learning approaches and explore that in that context because operationally it makes sense.
1: Yeah, that so so that that brings up like another question, which isn't for a specific paper, but it may actually let you spawn into a couple other papers um so the one thing that that is somewhat of a challenge when going through the the VisSec papers and this is this was last year's and the company, like you you keep a good archive you know on your site with the searchable um you know, paper database that you have so it's easy for folks to go back and look at at, at previous years a, after the current publishing year is over and the reproducibility factor in the papers can be challenging given like sometimes the complete lack of tool, data source, et et cetera, for that. And I'm not saying they're all that way, but one reason why you might not have the engagement from the community is that a lot of us – and I will lump myself into that category – beyond the academic interest, like to have something practical that we might be able to then go do and provide direct feedback for and say, what if you thought about this, or they could even try to apply it to something else and say, hey, you guys, if you went in this direction, take a look. You know, it's a, in that kind of more collaborative, reproducible research kind of a thing. So did you find this year's to be, you know, more in that reproducible research theme, less same, and it's, or, I mean, were, there, were there specific ones like that?
2: That is a great question, and this is actually something that we should start tracking as a community, not just VizSec, but Viz and other academic communities in general. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one of the reasons why we all connected, so Bob, Jay, and me in the first place, is because I released one of my tools on GitHub, and people found it, and they started using it, and it became, you know an interesting, you know, case study, a case point. So that was the Nessus uh, uh, vulnerability visualization from 2012. Uh, so we released that. We put the GitHub repo in the paper. We had a working tool. I actually spent some, a little bit of extra time to make sure that it worked uh, along with my colleagues. And, you know, what's missing is that academics don't yet see the value, and we really need to make a case for that. Uh, We don't have enough success stories, you know, like this one that that we shared and a a few others um, to to say that this is really valuable. Um, So this year, I actually did a quick search uh, while we were setting up. It turns out that one of the papers, and we'll give it a shout out since they did do this, they released their tool. um, And this is actually BitConeView visualization of flows in the Bitcoin transaction graph. Uh, and this is a very long list of authors, and a lot of them are Italian, so I won't try to go through them. But this is uh, Batista et al. Uh, from several different institutions. Uh, but they actually have a GitHub repo where they're releasing their actually kind of nice-looking tool to look at the uh, blockchain uh, and purity of uh, you know, Bitcoin as it, as it sort of plays out. I don't really know much about Bitcoin, uh, but it seems like they have a sort of event graph Uh, visualization here showing events over time and how purity changes and uh, they have some case studies here where they're trying to look for you know sort of like money laundering activities in the Bitcoin graph but what's interesting about it is that they spent the time actually to make this a usable tool and it looks like you can access it right now with some example data Um, which I guess because Bitcoin data is already open and easily accessible right I think we all have access to you know, uh, aspects of the the Bitcoin data. Maybe that's why it was a little bit easier for them to, to release something uh, from the get-go.
0: Yeah, it looks like they go off of uh, blockchain.info that, okay. that feeds transactions from the Bitcoin network.
2: And, you know, that's kind of part right. of it. One of the reasons why the Nessus security visualization tool that I released, um, you know, the reason why I was able to release it is because we had example data, And that actually came from a visual analytics uh, challenge data set. So it was still within the community. uh, But part of this is just having access to interesting data sets and ground truth. And once that's out there, it makes a really good excuse for us to say, well, you know, if you need data, just go to this site, blockchain.info, and you can get it. Um, And and that kind of reduces the opportunity cost to releasing stuff. Uh, Because if I had to get my own data set and that's going to be extra work, you know, we're we're lazy. Um, So so somehow making this easier, making open science easier is a very broad problem. Um, But kudos to those guys for, uh, you know, uh, actually releasing that. Definitely. Um, So on on a, a less positive note, that's one paper out of the many that we have here this year. Uh So again, that's something that we should be tracking um and uh I, I i can definitely attest this is something that I require my students and myself to do with papers uh, is to release the data sets now, release the R scripts uh release the tools when possible uh when at all possible. Right. It's not always going to be possible. sometimes you build something for someone and they want it uh or it's just too much work. it would take you know another six months to turn it into something that you can actually release.
0: Is there is there also a problem, this is probably more of an academic question for you, but is there also a problem of incentive that, in fact, in the academic community, there's very little um, emphasis on source code and a lot more emphasis on publication? That's true.
2: So, you know, source code doesn't exactly... Uh, uh, factor into to tenure and promotion right. uh, at an academic institution. I mean, I suppose it could whenever people, you know, if you release the most popular tool ever, um, maybe that gets factored in somehow, but that's basically like blogging, right? So who cares if I have 20,000 Twitter followers? Right. <laughs> um, so, so I, you know, I, the academic community will come along, um, you know, if, if slowly. to to sort of take into account this sort of thing. Um, But, you know, there's not a direct incentive, but the the incentive is indirect. You get more citations. I mean, I I bet somebody's gonna run that study and say that, you know, papers that release code and release data and release tools get cited more. I mean, that's an incentive. That's a direct incentive. Uh, And Another great thing is that the the National Science Science Foundation, at least as far as I know that they, they've started requiring certain you know uh, things on their data policy for things to be released. Uh, so now it's built into the way that we get our funding uh, you can expect more and more people to do it. I'm sure there are ways to subvert it, but they'll become more and more direct uh, over time. so yeah. so this and- is something that's happening it's good to be
1: ahead of the curve. And I think it's just good to know. I mean, like we're we're late. We're focused on security because we're a security podcast. But this isn't a challenge just for security, right? The the federal government just released a study where they couldn't reproduce half of the economics papers that were out there. And there's actually a requirement. For reproducibility in in, yeah. that, in that space as well, so it's it's actually one of those things where it, it is difficult to to kind of say that this is going to be a thing or not. But I, I guess a couple things just just to kind of talk back to the the academic you know, uh, data driven security community for this, you know, don't be afraid to to release kind of like meh stuff onto GitHub because there's a lot of meh things that actually get turned into pretty awesome things as a result of folks kind of piling on and, and doing that and. You know, I realize data is a challenge, but you've got things like Mike Scanzo's SecRepo, which has a bunch of data that's available for folks to go take a look at and use. So there's not that it's got everything, but it does have data that is useful for 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 a lot of folks out there to be able to do that. Yeah. But 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 I guess finally, you know, I, I I think I think I will finally be amazed and kind of psyched when I see the first retraction for a, for a security paper. 'cause there there' cause there really isn't one yet, which means like it it kind of it kind of to me like security will have grown up when there finally is a retracted security you know like academic paper and I don't think there's Because that' yet.
0: Cause that, cause that would imply that someone actually read it and found yep. you know tried to do something with it and found some issue. Yeah,
1: and and it, and it was important enough to go do that work for. Us. So I I, I just so, so I think we're heading there. It's, I just think that there and it you know there's a lot of challenges and and, and not, not picking on anybody for this. I think we can all help, both industry and academia can can be working together to make this make this better. Yeah. The uh, the one paper because I, I I don't have access to a lot of these papers because and this isn't a dig either. Like there's the the IEEE. It's a funded thing, and I know that you may be doing something to get some early release things out there. But I, I, um, I was really impressed um, with one of the papers, and that was the, the one about user-centered design methods. That's correct. And also,
2: by the time this airs, we should have a password-protected Dropbox link up uh, for, for listeners. Um, maybe we can include the password in the show notes
1: as long as we can remove that later. Oh, we'll remove the link, so it'll all work. Okay. Um, oh, wait a minute, Jay. What we'll do is if they play the episode backwards... They'll get the password.
0: <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work. Let's not do that. We will backmask the podcast for everybody. <laughs>
2: yeah. that, that will be pretty work. great. All right. So, so this paper, um, we'll, we'll also give it a shout out. User-centered design methods for building cybersecurity visualizations. So it's not often that we get, you know, papers that are focused on, you know, not just the end product, but the process of designing a security visualization. Um, that's that's also true in, in visualization where you know sometimes we're focused on the product or the theoretical result and not the process itself, uh, and it turns out that designing security visualizations uh, is challenging. Uh, there there's so many uh, different operators and uh, or I guess you know you have to take the operational and organizational process into account, and uh, it seems like this paper uh, does a does a decent job of that. Um, so one thing that we were, were talking about um, before, Bob, were the uh, personas. Um, so this one, uh, figure five, if you actually have access to the paper. Uh, but th- this paper actually talks about the different personas um, that they developed uh, and how those impacted tool design. So we have the the CEO, the decision maker, uh, director of IT, uh, the NOC manager, and the cyber analyst. So these are kind of, you know, you, your mileage may vary, on you know depending if your organization plays out this way or not. Uh, but Bob, can you comment on that? Like, what you found interesting in this while I actually dig into what these figures are saying?
1: Yeah, the um, so I I think for fo- just don't worry that it's an ac- academic paper for anyone listening and especially if you're not doing you know maybe like a lot of hardcore machine learning whatever. This is a great paper for everybody out there to kind of you know, understand that there are different targets for the visualization and for the understanding and for what you're trying to communicate. So I thought that was one of the core things that it communicated. It's also a pretty short paper too, which was which is going to make it easier for a lot of people to have, it's make it more accessible to a lot of people. But um it really helps folks understand the the basically it, like and if you read if you look at the the figure it, it's almost like I think a baseball card or like a D and D card or a Pokemon card or whatever that if you know, it's got different attributes associated with each of these personas and by actually understanding what those are and maybe even having like one of these as a cheat sheet next to you when you're making visualizations in general and not, not necessarily something that's operational targeted. This is a way to help you understand what the, the, the mental models for your audience are, what the questions that your audience is asking, and be able to target to them really well. And, like, they've done research now. Like, this is actually based on research. So it isn't just people, you know, thinking about stuff, and it isn't a, it isn't a separate discipline. It's a cyber one. And, you know, this is a – to me, if I was, if I was back in an enterprise having to target visualizations, this is a great tool to use to help you understand how you need to craft those visualizations in general.
2: That's why I like this paper it says unlocking user centered design methods. So some of these uh personas they actually rate each uh role in different dimensions. So you have, you know, knowledge of operations, the CEO uh, supposedly has a lot of that, um whereas the CEO will not have much knowledge about cybersecurity uh in general. So uh that that seems to make sense and then the uh, the actual attention span of the CEO. So they they included this, um, is, is a one out of five. Uh, so whatever you're communicating, you need to do it well, and you need to do it fast and clearly. Um, another dimension that would be interesting to add to this, I I probably shouldn't get into this, but the the, the visualization literacy or the visual literacy of each of these
1: people. I like that. That, I think that's awesome.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least they're, 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 uh, you know, willingness to learn. So, a cyber analyst, you could probably throw them a much more complex visualization. They may even talk about this in the paper, um, and, and they'll learn it because they have a reason to. Uh, whereas the CEO, we don't need to throw them, you know, some, some radial parallel coordinates or something like that uh, to communicate a point. Um, we need to keep keep their operational their time constraints in mind.
1: Yeah, the the one thing that I I would like to shout out to to folks because this was I think the other nugget that I really enjoyed about it is. Um, they they, they, they talked at every level and like the analyst is really kind of like the forefront of a lot of the visualizations that we're talking about in all the papers and one of the one of the best statements is when they're talking about the results that you know the analyst was unconvinced that graphs could show meaningful insights at scale with each node representing a single IP address and I just thought that was kind of <laughs> awesome um, because that's so true and like this is folks in the field you know they're, they're they're doing this work saying that so like you know, Basically, stop making you know spaghetti graphs of individual IP addresses and start looking at it at a broader picture.
2: Yeah, but how do you do that? That's that's a really interesting problem. So, Absolutely. given that you have all of this data, can you build bottom up or do you go top down? Uh, and and one other thing you mentioned the the mental models of the analyst. That's a that's an interesting question that I haven't seen explored. You know, to to some degree. So, I mean, how how do mental models of you know operations or where should you look at whenever you're looking to assess someone's mental model? I mean, do you look at the, the analysts themselves, or and do you, you know, switch between teams, or at what granularity do you would you do that to actually get something useful? And what would you get? Is That's that
1: an unanswerable an question? I, I don't think it's unanswerable, but I think it's I think it's going to be one that takes a lot of time to answer, and I think that there's going to be a lot of dimensions to the answer. As I'm, I'm, it may sound like a cop-out reply, but I don't think it is a cop-out reply. I think this is one of those very complex topics. And, and to give folks an idea of, of, I mean, if you're not used to that term, we use it in the book. Um, you, you can, um, uh, The design of, of everyday things has a great couple chapters, and it's all really kind of about my mental models when you, when you think about that book. But uh, I run into this problem every single time that I try to run Inkscape or Illustrator. Um, my mental model of how I want to interact with with those curves <laughs> and those lines and everything is not how those tools are set up. So it, just to give folks an idea, with it, it's completely different than your mental model of how you're working with a, a a spreadsheet or working with text. And you may think you want to actually you know do things a certain way. And most of the tools that you're going to use, if you're ever, if you have a certain mindset, not so the art. Folks that are more artistically inclined have no problem with it for some reason. I do. So that mental model thing is kind of aligned to something like that.
2: Mental models, very complex. So there's been some interesting research in the Viz community from Barbara Tversky, um, who is a psychologist at Stanford, uh, and Manish Argawala, uh, a a visualization class graphics person um, who who won a MacArthur Genius Award. So apparently he's the real deal too. Uh, But looking at, you know, assessing people's mental models to build better visualization tools. Um, And so there's some papers out there that, you know actually talk about mental models making them operational and usable and you're right that there's so many different facets to it to actually apply this in security practice I mean, there you could get tons out of it um, but I would love to see something where you know you just kinda take a few more steps in that direction uh, because it gets at this kind of you know top-down notion of looking at the users first and then using that to to kinda of cull the design space of visualization uh, and going back to when I'm describing the evolution of VisSec. You know, VizSec has already defined a pretty broad design space. We've looked at a lot of different types of data and produced, you know, many different types of visualization, and now we need ways to kind of cut through it um, in an efficient way so that we can design tools for a given task. And maybe, you know, assessing mental models and talking about that is one way to do it.
1: Well, uh, you'll, you'll know if, like, if any of the, the folks writing papers will, like, that are targeted towards operations folks, they'll know they succeeded when the operations folks stop using grep. The minute you get – the minute grep is not the toolbox of choice and the tool is – and the tool is the tool of choice, you know you've succeeded.
2: Oh, my goodness. So I I don't know if you're doing this intentionally, but this is a a quote from Danny Quist, um, who who is – he actually posed this at a panel that I was at once. He said, the tool, the evaluation tool that you should use for any security visualization is just to ask, is my tool better than grep? So. (laughs) It seems like this is a common thing now, and I've been like keeping that in the back of my mind for years. I mean, maybe sometimes I'll say, you know, is my tool better than Tableau? That's, that's you know, a kind of
1: a yes. visualization. Yes. No, just that, yes, right there, yes, I can tell you that. <laughs> uh,
2: but yes, is my tool better than Grep? Please ask that question. Anytime you're making a, a Visek paper, it will make your job a lot easier. Maybe we'll add that to the review form in future years. Is this tool better than Grep? Yes, no. I'm kidding. We won't do
1: that. <laughs> so, do you want to do you want to take us on a whirlwind tour of, of uh, some some of the other ones? Sure. So, I have my out pile,
2: my in pile. Um, let's go through some of these fun ones that are just kind of a grab bag. Um, so, uh, red teaming. Uh, so, we have one paper: visual analytics for cyber red teaming, and it looks like they're taking a, a model-based approach, um, given that you have you know models of your network. Uh, you know, can you somehow assess multi-stage attacks, and how does visualization fit into that process? Um, so that's one interesting one. Um, another one uh, that we mentioned uh, uh, briefly is uh, discovery of rating fraud with real-time streaming visual analytics. Uh, I think what's interesting about that paper is that, uh, so, so rating fraud um, is, you know, finding things like, uh, uh, in an, this takes a broad definition of security. We'll, okay. we'll, we'll leave it at that. So, so uh, you know, it, uh, if on Amazon you have someone that rates everything as a, a one and then rates one thing as a five, that could be suspicious. So this is a very broad definition of security, part of the uh, process of defining a design space. Um, but it deals with network connectivity data, and it deals with it in real time. And it, you know, it talks about the visual analytics system that could be built around that and what types of, you know, Uh, algorithms can actually scale to process things in real time or within a very short window uh, to give you information you know as it comes in. Uh, So that's an interesting one adding in real time uh, is always a a challenge and we haven't seen enough of that in the Viz community proper. Uh, I have several other papers here. Um, Some that I put together, I put together the situation awareness ones um, which are always interesting. How do you define situation awareness? Um, and, and what are you trying to get at? Uh, so, so one, Ensemble Visualization for Cyber Situation Awareness of Network Security from Li Hua Hao of uh, NC State. Uh, so as I understand it, Ensemble Visualization is getting at uh, this whole notion of running simulations. So given that you have some sort of model in your network and you want to test some sort of assumption, uh, you can run a, a simulation on top of it, and it looks like they're collaborating with the U.S. Army Research Laboratory, so they probably have some uh, sort of simulation tools that they're building on top of this. Uh, so that can be a, an interesting approach. Actually, one paper that I had a few years back used simulation data um, to great effect because we're able to test edge cases in a visualization and you know to capture things, situations that you know are difficult
1: to to capture otherwise. You, you, and you, you, you're, you're about to come on a bunch of them where it. I think I told you earlier. Um, the, it, I, I, I always keep this quote from Alex Pinto, and he got it from somewhere else, but uh, he says it a lot to me. Um, naming things is hard, so a lot of the comp- upcoming papers, and stuff, <laughs> they, like, they, they, they meet that definition in spades. Let's just, let's just say that. So.
2: Right. Yeah, it's, it's actually easier to look at the program whenever I'm actually saying these, uh, these titles uh, because a lot of them are a mouthful. Um, now on the next one, I, so no offense to the next one, but contextual network navigation to provide situational awareness for network administrators. I think one way that academics kind of get around this is that they do the name and colon thing. Like right. they make up a name for something like, I don't know, bananas, and then some acronym that involves bananas. <laughs> <laughs> We'll we'll think of something to fit with that later. But this one was actually really interesting. Um, contextual network navigation. So given that you're uh, so again, this gets at that uh, interesting evolution point that we're talking about, where they're taking into account the uh, operational objectives of the people using the tool. Um, so ca- contextual network navigation means that you know, given the context that you know you're currently in, or the the task that you're currently doing, maybe your network representation should change. So get rid of the hairball. Um, and kind of take this sort of, uh, I guess, reduced approach or, you know, a a centric approach, something centric or something is the context that you're currently in. Uh, So that's that's pretty interesting. And it looks like they're using that to sort of plan um, and make operational decisions, uh, which is great that they're, you know, going beyond just visualizing network uh, data and actually talking about how people are going to make decisions with it. All right, so rounding out to the last four, uh, we have one interesting one that I haven't seen before on insider threats. Um, kind of defining the challenges there, uh, something that people can build off of. Um, Ocelot, user-centered design for decision support visualization of network quarantine. Uh, I guess you know, one thing that we don't take into account are the consequences of you know the operational decisions we make. Um, so whenever we have to quarantine part of a network for one reason or another, It would be nice to have some sort of uh, support tool for that. And it looks like this one is getting at it. Uh, Another one, um, Percival Proactive Reactive Attack and Response Assessment for Cyber Incidents Using Visual Analytics. That was a fun one. Um, (laughs) So what they're getting at with this one is, uh, you know, whenever you're trying to respond to a certain type of attack, how do you plan that? Uh, And it looks like you have several different response plans and you can kind of see how they uh, are going to impact you operationally. And one that I want to spend a little bit of time on, because it's very interesting, SNAP Semantic Network Traffic Analysis Through Projection and Selection. But I haven't spent too much time with this paper, but what's very interesting about it is that they're they're kind of giving a call out to uh, APTs, um, and they make a, a kind of strong statement I wanted to get your guys' take on, not to take apart our papers uh, in a podcast, but they're saying to detect an APT um, you actually need uh, packet-level data.
0: Right, l- let me just say it this way, Lane. Uh, it should be possible to do so, <laughs> but I think limiting it to that particular type of data source would be mm-hmm. detrimental.
1: Well, it didn't I mean I, I I interpreted it, and some well, actually it's interesting that we heard that differently because I interpreted it as you can't find them without pcap data. All right, let me clarify. I think they're saying that having PCAP data
2: really helps you detect APTs.
0: Okay. Yes. Is that
1: true? That's a little bit of a softer I'm I'm sure it would help, yes. Okay. You're sure it would help? Okay. Nice. We we could actually get the APT hunters at Threat Connect maybe to help us out with that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That would be interesting. I would love to send this to them. I mean, it's actually a problem I'm thinking about. Uh, because it turns out that, you know, some some organizations, to me, it seems, they're, they're trying to collect data. They can collect a lot of PCAP data, but they can only keep a very short window of it um, available to analysts. Right. I, I don't think you can keep it forever, so correct me if I say anything wrong. This is just my understanding of, you know, hearing piecemeal through papers and through talking to analysts. Um, so there's a window of data, and you have, you know, end days to kind of, you know, parse through it all if you really want to discover a recent attack. Um, and the the way that people look at pcap data now, as far as I understand, is using things like Wireshark. Is that true?
1: Um, it's it's Wireshark. Like, so Wireshark does help you go through pcaps. Mm-hmm. The, and and your assumption or the posit you just made is not incorrect. You've got products like NetWitness. We're not shilling NetWitness, by the way, because I'm just using a common term that everyone will understand. Um, that that do that large scale um like collection. And you're right, it is basically you collect as much as you are willing to pay storage for so um, mm-hmm. so it, it's like it, it's, as much yeah, as much money as you want to give to EMZ is how much you're actually going to have. you put in a thing or see or whatever and 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 so it is finite it, it is not an infinite resource and i think that that's one thing that that maybe we 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 do take for granted is that you know this we do It is not an storage is not inexhaustible. It does cost money to maintain, keep up, whatever. So you're right. There is a limited window that people do have to use these tools. Wireshark is one way to go Do look at that, but there's other ways of doing
2: that. Okay, gotcha. And do these other ways typically involve... uh, So Wireshark, it seems like you're really drilling down on an individual packet level. Uh, So it, it seems like the problem might be that you're only exploring part of that window before it's kind of out of the way right? You're kind of driven by intuition or through an IDS or something like that. So given that you have this kind of window of data, what are the ways that you actually, you know, the analyst actually drills down to look at individual packets? Uh, And do they actually cover enough? um, and, And can they claim that they're not missing anything? Or is there a need for something that helps them process that data faster?
1: That's, and you know, there are other tools that, that do help folks in that particular space. There's some of these larger scale data tools mm-hmm. that are actually able to do do some analysis in that space. But I don't think I've, you know, Jay, you know, like a, you, you've kind of been talking to the product people out and out about more than I have, but I don't think anyone's even come close to solving this problem
0: yet. And, you know, one of the main problems with doing PCAP is that it's not, I mean, typically you're not talking about a flat network where you get to see every piece of traffic because mm-hmm. all the capture points. It's a capture at a specific place, and so even though you might, you know, you might see like the desktop network, and therefore you might see traffic going from desktop to some server, but you may not see server-to-server communication if there is any. That type of thing, you know, it's always, it's always from a perspective that you get gotcha. data. And so that's, I would love that's kind of know the challenge.
2: Yeah, I've actually heard that again and again and again, and I've never seen a solution for it. I'm not sure that this paper is targeting that. It seems like for me they're talking about, you know, if you have to look at a lot of packets, how can you do that much more quickly so that you're covering a larger space of that window? But what you're talking about, Jay, that's also a very interesting problem. I would love to see someone, you know, try try to tackle that. You know, what are, what are the blind spots in your network? You know, do you actually know what you're missing? That seems like it even gets back to what uh, Bob was talking about, about a person's mental model. That's something that might just
1: live in the analyst's head, and, you know, there's no way that I would ever know about that. Right. PCAP imputation, there you go. So someone make a billion dollars doing PCAP imputation.
0: Okay. <laughs>
2: We're just going to make more PCAP data
0: to deal with. All right, well, we're coming up on an hour mark here. It's uh, uh, unbelievable that we're able to talk that long and not actually realize that it seems like five minutes have gone by. Um, So I think we're going to wrap it up here. Any closing thoughts from anyone?
2: Uh, Visec is in uh, about two weeks. Um, So October 26th is Visec. I'm sure we will have the hashtag hashtag V I Z S E C. Uh, People will be tweeting. Uh, we have some some reliable tweeters in the audience. Um, hopefully me. Uh, so our keynote speaker, Greg Conti. Um, some people have heard of him. Uh, so he's got some cred on both the academic and the uh, industry slash government side. I'm not gonna group you together, but just for the purposes of the pitch. Um, so it should be interesting to hear from Greg.
0: Absolutely. And that's October 26th in Chicago. It's true, in Chicago. Yeah. All right, well, Lane, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you, guys. It's great
0: to be here. Hopefully we can do four or five or six times. Absolutely. The door's always open, Lane.